Father, we are so privileged to be able to come into your presence this morning. So many of us forget so often just what an extreme privilege it is to be able to approach you boldly, freely, with confidence, to be in your presence, and that was not always possible. There was a veil. There were different things that kept us from you. And we thank you that those things have been removed through the blood of Jesus Christ. And that this morning we can enter into your presence. Thank you, Lord, for meeting us here, for caring so deeply about us. Thank you for your word. Thank you for writing down what it is you wanted us to know about you and about your son, about your ministry, about your spirit, about what it is you're, you're calling us into in this world. Help us to listen well as you speak to us. I pray that you would set me aside and do what you want to do through me over the next few minutes here. We welcome you here. We're excited to be here with your people in your house. And we commit this time to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, a few years ago I had an experience that I will not soon forget. Uh, I remember looking back on it shortly after it happened and wondering if God was going to use that experience at some point to convey a message to someone else. Um, there were many different settings that it would match up with, but I impatiently waited for the right one, and I think I might have found the right one this morning where I can use this story. Um, God has blessed me with many experiences that make good stories to teach with. Um, this past week when we were down at Camp Victory, uh, being the speaker for the middle school camp, I had uh, over 40 kids and uh, was given four chapel sessions to speak to them in. And, and I love setting this like that because I just get to pick my best stories and work them all into one big four-part lesson, and it's great fun. They haven't heard them before. Uh, the things that I have experienced, um, especially the near-death experiences, uh, go a long ways in getting and holding the attention of a 13-year-old. So um, I, I do enjoy doing that. Well, this particular story, it really doesn't have a lesson embedded in it, per se, so I was starting to wonder if, if it would fit in anywhere in my teaching, but as I prepared for the sermon, um, I found my mind drawn back to that experience as I was wrestling with how to better understand the setting of the letter to the church at Ephesus. And so here's the experience that I'm talking about. Um, Kim and I were just beginning to get settled and coming to terms with the fact that we were going to be staying in the United States and not returning to Senegal. And so we had landed here, and um, we're starting to get set up, and of course we needed things like a house to live in and a car to drive and that sort of stuff. And we had found one car that we could drive, and uh, my dad down in Oklahoma had used all his connections to get us a, a very cheap and reliable vehicle. Now we realized we were going to need a second one with me making the trip from Prior Lake over here to Egan and Kim needing to get the boys to preschool and all that kind of stuff. And so... Um, I put the challenge to my dad again. Can you please find me another cheap, fantastic vehicle um, that we can have that will last for years and years and years? And he took that challenge on, and soon he found one that would work for us. The problem, of course, was geography. We were here in Minnesota. The car was down in Oklahoma. I had to go there and get it. Now, flying was just too expensive and was completely out of the question, so I had to look at other options. And the best option that came to mind and eventually won out was taking the bus. It would only cost $53 for me to take this trip. And so late one evening, Kim and the boys dropped me off 
down at the Burnsville bus depot, and I waited for the Greyhound bus that would take me to Kansas City where I would switch over to the Wichita bus. So eventually the bus pulls into the station, uh, late enough to make me really worry if I had messed something up and was not supposed to be there. But the bus showed up and uh, the adventure began. And I stepped on board the bus and started making my way down the, the main aisle looking for an empty seat in a very crowded bus. Well, God had already arranged the seating, so there was only one aisle seat available. It was about halfway back, and so I took my place and off we went. Now, if you have never taken a cross-country trip on a public bus, you really need to experience it. You do. <laughs> um, now, in most settings on buses like that, the, the passengers very quickly form this little community bond on the bus because they know that we're going to have to put up with each other for hours, and, and this trip was just like this. Uh, there was a bond that had already developed. The point of departure for this bus was way up in Duluth, so by the time it got to Burnsville, they had already formed this sense of community on the bus. And so when I walked on, I was like the new kid just moving in, and I got treated that way. Um, I got introduced around. It, I'm serious, this is what happens. <laughs> it's, it's weird, but it's kind of cool. <laughs> Sitting next to me in this seat was Terry, and Terry didn't say much, just kind of took in the conversation, added a few comments here and there, and slept for about two-thirds of the trip, so it wasn't really part of the story. Behind me sat Kathy. Kathy was a youth pastor's wife. She was very passionate about God and about ministry, and she was on her way to visit family. The woman sharing the seat with Kathy back here, she was a part of the community behind them, so she wasn't really part of our story. It was, it was as if there was a fence there, and she was in that neighborhood. So we didn't hear much from her. Across from me and back one row was George. George was an inmate on weekend leave. He had been in prison for 10 years on domestic violence charges. But he had met Jesus Christ in prison. And it happened just recently. And so there was nobody sitting with George. George was a very big guy, and he needed the whole double seat, and no one was going to press the issue. And then right across from me in the seat next to me was Jesus. Jesus was asleep, and he had been sleeping since Duluth. Actually, he had been sleeping since before Duluth somewhere. Jesus was from California. He had moved a while ago to Duluth where he had some relatives. Um, Jesus had a drinking problem. And when he was drunk, he became very violent. So much so that his family had taken measures during one of his tirades. And in his drunken stupor, Jesus was dragged to the bus depot in Duluth where they bought a one-way ticket for him to Los Angeles and dumped him on the bus. So since Duluth, Jesus had been asleep, sprawled out on the two seats across from me, completely oblivious to the world around him. A couple hours into the trip, Jesus wakes up, a little disoriented and not very happy at all, and certainly not aware of what was about to happen to him. So bits and pieces of his story were soon gathered, and he was introduced to what would be his community for the night. Food and drink were generously offered to him by his community, and for the next eight hours, Jesus was held captive by his namesake, Jesus Christ. He had nowhere to go to get away from the message 
that God had prepared for him to receive that night. Now here's the piece that makes this story applicable to what we're talking about this morning. The youth pastor's wife, Kathy, she contributed a lot to the conversation, but there was no connection with Jesus. Kathy came from a small town in Wisconsin, and Jesus' world was very, very far from her own in every imaginable way. <laughs> the youth pastor, that was me at that time, I, I also contributed. I had some understanding and some insight that helped to clarify some different concepts about God as we went, but Jesus wasn't really listening to me either. The one who held Jesus' attention throughout the trip was George. George understood God's grace. George understood sin and forgiveness. George could speak to Jesus' heart and he spoke of things that were so important to him and so personal and so real. A few more hours into the trip, Jesus announced that he was going to get some more sleep and George stated with great simplicity and sincerity, no, you're not. <laughs> he said, I'll tell you when you can sleep. <laughs> and so Jesus listened on. We arrived in Kansas City early the next morning, and I needed to get off the bus to transfer to the Wichita bus. But before I stepped off, I heard Jesus asking George if he was getting off there in Kansas City. And George responded with, nope, not yet. I'm not done with you. And Jesus just smiled. Uh, I wish I knew the rest of the story, but I am very confident in a God who arranges specific circumstances and puts his people in the right place at the right time. Early on in the conversation, George had listened to Jesus' story, and you could see the passion building in George as he responded to Jesus' story with the words, Young man, let me tell you a secret. And on it went. The gospel of Jesus Christ was told through the eyes and words of a convict and spilled out into the world of that Greyhound bus bound for Kansas City. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 1. That's where we're going. Turn there now. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 1. We're going to read the first 13 verses of chapter 3 today and study those for a while. The moral of that story is ride the bus. <laughs> Ephesians chapter 3, beginning at verse 1, says this, For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, and then he loses his train of thought. Surely you've heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you. That is the mystery made known to me by revelation, as I've already written briefly. In reading this, then, you'll be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to people in other generations, as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets. This mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and sharers together in the promise of Christ Jesus. I became a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace given me through the working of his power. Although I am less than the least of all the Lord's people, this grace was given me to preach to the Gentiles the boundless riches of Christ 
and to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery, which for ages past was kept hidden in God who created all things. His intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms, according to his eternal purpose that he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. In him and through faith in him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. I ask you, therefore, not to be discouraged because of my sufferings for you, which are your glory. Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus. And today's passage touches yet again on a truth that we have looked at a couple times already in our study of the book of Ephesians. So I want to pause and look at the author of this letter a little more closely, and then we'll break down the passage. Paul's about to start a prayer for the church at Ephesus, and he gets back to that prayer in verse 14 of this chapter. But first he pauses to make a few statements to them as a reminder before getting back to his prayer. So this whole passage that we just read is like one big parenthesis, and I love the authenticity of that. Paul starts writing, and then he just changes course for a few minutes. Mid-sentence. Now, no historical document would have included something like this. Nobody who was fabricating something that they were going to try to pass off as the word of God would have written it this way. This is a letter, tangent and all, that God intended to be read for millennia, and it is the real deal. And it's written by a real person who writes from a real prison. This real person, Paul, is by far the dominant figure in the New Testament. He wrote at least 13 of the 27 New Testament books, and God used this man, Paul, to reveal truths, mysteries that were hidden to even the most faithful prophets since the beginning of time, Paul mentions at the beginning of the letter to the Ephesians that he is an apostle, but here he refers to himself as the prisoner of Christ Jesus. He had been in prison for about five years, two years in Caesarea and the rest in Rome. There were Jewish leaders from the province of Asia who were in Rome and had come up with some false charges against Paul. And I want you to hear how this went down. Turn back in your Bibles, turn back to Acts chapter 21. Acts chapter 21. We're going to look at some of what happened that eventually landed Paul in prison. Acts chapter 21, beginning at verse 27. We're going to read through verse 36. Acts 21 and verse 27. When the seven days were nearly over, some Jews from the province of Asia saw Paul at the temple. They stirred up the whole crowd and seized him, shouting, Fellow Israelites, help our people, help us. This is the man who teaches everyone everywhere against our people and our law and this place. And besides, he has brought Greeks into the temple and defiled this holy place. Remember the map that we had up about that showed the temple and where the Gentiles were allowed? This is what he's talking about. They had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, in the city with Paul and assumed that Paul had brought him into the temple. The whole city was aroused, and the people came running from all directions. Seizing Paul, they dragged him from the temple, and immediately the gates were shut. While they were trying to kill him, news reached the commander of the Roman troops that the whole city of Jerusalem was in an uproar. He at once took some officers and soldiers and ran down to the crowd 
when the rioters saw the commander and his soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. The commander came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. Then he asked who he was and what he had done. Some in the crowd shouted one thing and some another, and since the commander could not get at the truth because of the uproar, he ordered that Paul be taken into the barracks. When Paul reached the steps, the violence of the mob was so great, he had to be carried by the soldiers. And the crowd that followed kept shouting, get rid of him. Okay, so what does Paul do? <laughs> he witnesses to the mob. He tells them his story of how he met Christ and and they're all listening now because they suddenly, suddenly realize that he's speaking their language, Aramaic. He's one of them. And things seem to be going along well as he unfolds his story for them until he mentions the fact that God sent him to the Gentiles. And the crowd goes crazy again and wants him dead. And so a series of trials begins that lands Paul in jail, first in Caesarea and then in Rome where he was kept in private quarters with a guard watching over him. Now, notice something here that, that I think is really inspiring. He refers to himself in our passage, and you can go back there now to Ephesians 3, he refers to himself in our passage as Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus. He was arrested on Jewish charges, but he did not consider himself a prisoner of the Jews. He was imprisoned by Roman authority, but did not consider himself a prisoner of the Romans. He had appealed to Caesar during his trial, but did not consider himself a prisoner of Caesar. He was a servant of Jesus Christ and considered himself Christ's prisoner and no one else's. Whatever he did, wherever he went, it was all under Christ's control. He was not subject to the plans, power, or punishment of any man or any government. And what the language of this opening phrase in Greek indicates is that Paul considered Jesus to be the cause of his imprisonment. Now that's perspective. That's a man who understands that his life is not his own, that everything he's been given has been given him now for a greater purpose. The way he reacted to his circumstances should be a challenge to every single one of us. Our reaction to our circumstances is much more important than our circumstances themselves. We were not created to be controlled by our circumstances, and Paul's life is a vivid testimony to that truth. Paul had every reason to give up and to resign himself to his circumstances, but he demonstrates for us what it means to have a divine, a heavenly perspective. Paul trusted God's purposes. And that doesn't mean that Paul understood all of what God was doing or could see exactly what his future held. It meant that he intentionally, willingly put his life in God's trustworthy hands. Paul lived what he preached. He lived by faith and not by sight. Did Paul suffer as a prisoner of Christ Jesus? Yeah, more than you or I ever will. But so great was his perspective that he could even write that we should count it all joy when we're facing suffering or trials of any kind. He taught us that those trials produce faith and that that faith produces endurance and that that endurance leads to perfection and the completing of a process in us that is living a godly life. Paul knew that something bigger than himself was at work and, and so he could pen these words in the letter to the church at Philippi. Listen to Philippians chapter 1, verses 12 to 14. 
Now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. And because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. So Paul refers to himself as a prisoner of Christ Jesus for the sake of the Gentiles in Ephesus. Christ was not crucified for his own sake. Paul was not in prison for his own sake. He was imprisoned for the sake of his Lord and for the sake of those that he had been called to serve. He told the Colossian believers, I rejoice in my suffering for your sake. In fact, he said many of the same things to them as what he said to the church at Ephesus because they needed to understand it as well. The future of the church of Jesus Christ would depend on their perspective when the persecution came, and it came. The gospel of Jesus Christ would not have reached you or me were it not for the perspective of the believers who went before us. So a heart check now, perspective check. Are you a prisoner of Jesus Christ? Do you and I truly believe that God's purposes for us are greater than our own purposes? Do you see yourself as a teacher, a retail worker, an executive, a mom, a student, an electrician, a salesperson, a technician, a grandparent, a, a whatever, for the sake of those around you? Or are you what you are for your own sake? Are you doing what you're doing for the sake of your personal interests? For the sake of your desired level of income? For the sake of your need for status? And please don't misunderstand what I'm saying here. There are not specific careers that are more in line with God's purposes. If it's more spiritual to be a missionary than it is to wait tables, then why did Jesus put Paul in prison? It's not what I'm saying. This is not about your choice of circumstances. It is all about your perspective regarding your circumstances. Are you what you are for the sake of somebody else? So now in verse 2 of Ephesians chapter 3, Paul starts his tangent in which he returns to a truth that we've already looked at. He pauses and says, you've heard about what Jesus has done for me, haven't you? You've heard about this mystery that Christ has revealed to me, haven't you? And, and as we study, we want to answer him at this point. Yes, Paul, we've heard about this ministry. In fact, didn't you just write in this very sentence that you've already mentioned it in this letter? Well, he refers to the mystery made known to me by revelation as I have already written briefly. What's he doing? Why is he mentioning this truth again? Well, I think he repeats himself for at least four reasons, and the first reason is this. It was important to Paul. It was important to him. The first five verses of this passage, Paul goes back to the revelation of the mystery that he had received from Christ along with the grace that he had received. Paul's story was all about grace, and he saw that grace as something that was extended to him for the sake of the Gentiles reading his letter. Folks, never underestimate the power of God's grace when it is presented in the context of your own life story. Along with that grace, he'd been given the revelation of a mystery. Now understand 
that when the New Testament mentions a mystery, it is not talking about a Scooby-Doo kind of mystery. A mystery in this sense is not something spooky or eerie. It's not something that we need to be suspicious of, something that's rooted in evil intentions that we can uncover with our, our investigative skills. This kind of mystery is a truth that was hidden by God in times past and is now revealed to his people. God revealed a mystery to Paul. The reconciliation of the Gentiles in God's redemptive plan was something that had not been known before God revealed it to Paul. Prophets of old didn't know that this was coming. They had been told by God about the arrival of Christ and his role as the Savior. The Old Testament does state that God would save the Gentiles through Israel, but they had not been let in on the secret, the mystery of the reconciliation, the unifying that Christ had carried out between the Jews and Gentiles through Paul. Paul had been called by Christ to carry the gospel to the Jews and Gentiles and to form the first church with both reconciled parties involved. So this secret had been told to him and he was the minister of that mystery, that sacred secret. This was Paul's purpose, his calling in life, so of course it was important to him. Important enough that he could see above his circumstances to God's purposes and rejoice in whatever came his way along the road of carrying out his calling. Later in verse 9, Paul refers to the administration of this mystery. That meant he had been given this treasure, this truth, this mystery to invest. He was the steward of truth that had been revealed to him. God gave him this truth to share with the Gentiles. He was not just winning souls for Christ. He was teaching them about this newly revealed mystery. This mystery that Jews and Gentiles were now united in Christ as joint heirs and fellow members of God's household. This was important to, call, to Paul because it was his calling, so we can forgive him for his seeming repetition of something that we've grown up seeing as just normal, Jews and Gentiles together. And Paul went over this again for another reason. This was also important to the Gentiles. In verses 6 to 9, he reveals its importance to them. This was the mystery, that they have a wonderful new relationship with God through Jesus Christ. The things that we talked about last week regarding what they were without are now things that they have. They're fellow heirs with the Jews. They share in the riches that God promised through his covenant with Abraham. Being a Gentile was no longer a liability for them. They were also fellow members of the church, and they were partakers of the promises of God that they did not have access to before then. The revelation of this mystery gave them access to new power as well, and Paul mentioned the working of God's power in verse 7. He had written about this power back in the first chapter. We looked at that. Now he's going to mention it again, and he mentions it later in this chapter as well. They now had access to Christ's resurrection power every day for whatever they were facing, and Christ's riches were theirs. This was important to the Gentiles and well worth mentioning yet again. Why else was this mystery important enough to mention again? Because it was important to the angels. And this is a part of this passage that took some real exploring to understand. Verse 10, this is what it says. His intent was that now through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms according to his eternal purpose that he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. 
Paul is stating here that the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realm are getting an education through the revelation of this mystery. And that education is coming through the church. The rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms are the angels, both good ones and bad ones. Now remember that angels are created beings. They are not omniscient. They don't know everything. There are things that they just don't know. Listen to how Peter talked about this reality in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 10 through 12. He says, Concerning this salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was, com- was to come to you searched intently and with the greatest care, trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the Spirit excuse me, to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of the Messiah and the glories that would follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you when they spoke of the things that have now been told you by those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. And then he says this, even angels long to look into these things. The angels were curious about God's salvation plan. Now we know that the angels rejoice when a sinner is saved. They rejoiced this past week at Camp Victory when those kids gave their lives to Christ. Paul suggested in a letter to the Corinthians that they watch the activity of the church. So what do they learn from the church? They learn about the manifold wisdom of God. The angels learn from us. Paul called it the manifold wisdom of God. That word manifold refers to the, the beauty, the multicolored, the variegated nature of God's wisdom. Okay, so what about the bad angels? What do they learn? Well, Satan understood very little about this mystery. He knew there would be a savior. He knew when, where, how, and all that. But nowhere would Satan have found information concerning the unifying of the Jews and Gentiles into one church. He didn't see it coming, and he could do nothing to stop it. And he can do nothing to stop the church that Christ established. It has caught him off guard, and salvation has reached farther than he ever could have imagined it would. The church would now reveal the wisdom of God to all created beings. That revelation was important to the angels. Here's the fourth reason why Paul thought to mention this mystery, this truth again. Because it should be important to followers of Jesus Christ today. Verses 12 and 13. In him and through faith in him, We may approach God with freedom and confidence. I ask you, therefore, not to be discouraged because of my sufferings for you, which are for your glory. Uh, You and I can approach God with freedom and confidence because of the mystery revealed in Christ to the Apostle Paul. Is that important to you? When God saved Paul, he deposited in him the treasure of truth for him to invest Paul was an obedient steward of what he had been given. Paul entrusted the truth to faithful men like Timothy and he instructed those faithful men to entrust that truth to other faithful followers of Jesus Christ. Why? So that through the church, God's wisdom would be made known for eternity. You and I are wealthy beyond our wildest dreams in Christ And as a steward of God's truth, I will do my best not to let you forget that fact. Why? Because God has eternal purposes for this church 
and he has eternal purposes for you and for me. Before he carried on in his letter to the church at Ephesus, Paul felt compelled to stop mid-sentence and go over the basics again. He had received God's grace. and They needed to be certain of that. There was nowhere that God's grace could not reach, and he had been told a secret. It was a truth about the church that had been hidden from man until that very point in time. Something very significant was happening, and we are the beneficiaries of what God revealed to Paul at that critical moment in time. So let's get back on the bus to Kansas City. George was a recipient of God's grace. Like Paul, based on his history, he had a very personal understanding of what that meant. And George got the enormity of it all. George didn't feel worthy of the gift that God had given him. In thankfulness and humility, he spoke very openly of the transforming work of Christ in his life. Paul did this too. And Paul reminded the Gentiles of what we all need to be aware of. We all come from a place where we are not worthy of the grace that has been bestowed on us. On that bus, we were all servants of Jesus Christ that night. For the sake of Jesus, the guy who sat across the aisle from me, represented in that tiny little community on that bus was the eternal plan of God Almighty. We three believers came from very different backgrounds. But that night, there was no Jew or Gentile. There was no white, black, or Hispanic. There was no rich or poor. There was no dividing wall of hostility. There was only Jesus Christ and his one unified church. And that church was sharing a secret that God revealed many years ago and that he doesn't want to ever be a secret again. Brothers and sisters, we are the body of Jesus Christ, called according to his eternal purposes. And may the grace of Jesus Christ and the manifold wisdom of God be made known to the world through us, both individually and corporately as God's adopted children. You have received God's grace through Jesus Christ. His riches are your riches. You have become a part of the one unified church. We're going to keep these gift, gifts to ourselves and hoard them for our own sakes. Or will we be obedient to God's calling on our lives to be stewards of the gifts and truths that God has entrusted us with? I'm going to ask the ushers to come now and the worship team to return to the stage here. We'll close our time together. Before we do... Let's take a few minutes in prayer. Heavenly Father, once again we come before you humbled, amazed, and hopefully thankful for the grace that you have poured out on us. For that grace that could reach us no matter where we were that grace that could reach the Apostle Paul when he was Saul and a persecutor of the church, that grace that could reach George in prison, the grace that could reach Jesus on a bus.
And if we slow down long enough to think about it, how can we not be amazed at how generously you are pouring out that grace every minute of every day? And I ask, Father, that you would raise us up as a church and as individuals, members of your church, to be the vessels through which you carry your grace and present it to this world that needs it so badly. Thank you for the example that Paul gave. That regardless of his circumstances, he knew that he had a treasure that he was asked to invest and he turned around and did it in whatever way he could, even writing letters from a jail cell. Open our eyes and hearts to understand that, to be inspired by that, to be motivated by that, to recognize the fact that we have been given this mystery, this treasure, this grace, this gospel for the purpose of extending it to somebody else. Help us to live for someone else's sake. Help us to do whatever it is we're gonna do tomorrow, the rest of this day, whatever it is we're doing with our lives, our careers, our, our paths that we choose and try to do the best we can, help us to do it with the understanding that we're doing it for somebody else's sake. Forgive us for those times when we have made decision after decision after decision for our own sake, for our own pleasure, for our own interest, for our own status, for our own income. Thank you that wherever we are, in whatever circumstances we're at, that you're not saying change your circumstances and I'll be more impressed with you. You're simply saying change your perspective. Understand that I've got you there for the sake of somebody else. Help us to realize what it is to be prisoners of Jesus Christ for the sake of someone else. Thank you for your word. Thank you that we have access to it, that we have access to you. Thank you for this church, for the confidence that you have in us. Thank you for bringing us together, no matter what our background. Thank you that this church has no, no wall that says certain people can't be in here. That this church it's a church for all your people. Make us a welcoming place where everyone knows that here they meet Jesus Christ. They don't have to meet some standard, some requirement. God, I thank you that your power, your grace, that they are sufficient for us. We're counting on that. Counting on your grace to be sufficient for the needs of this church. And as we come now to give, we come giving generously and cheerfully as we start to see more and more of the importance of your church, the impact that you created it to have. Thank you, Lord, for who you are, for being right here with us. And we thank you for these things in Jesus' name. Amen.